You know, one of the benefits of doing uh, preaching the way we do it and teaching the way we do it, going book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is you get to know some of these uh, characters in the Bible like Rahab and Joshua. <clears throat> I remember back when we were at the garden at Church of the Palms, we did David. We learned a lot about David. Uh, we've learned a lot about John the Elder when we preached through Revelation. And now we get to learn about another precious early church father, James, the brother of Jesus. We're going to go over that in our series on James. Um, you can bring up the slides for the, um, for the sermon. Uh, this is going to be the graphic for the, for the, and I'm going to be explaining, go back, go back, go back. This is going to be the graphic for the series, This Guy Climbing a Mountain. You know, I never really understood mountain climbing. I'm not talking like walking up a mountain like you do in the Blue Ridge. You know, that's kind of cool, right? I'm talking these people that do the cliffs and stuff. Who, in their right mind, <laughs> go to the next slide. Who in their right mind puts their trust in a rope, fed through a clip, nailed into a rock, a thousand feet off the ground? How can you be sure the ropes and clips are even reliable? You see these, like this right here? These are steps. No! How can you know if you even hammered it in right? I mean, are you really confident in your hammering while hanging from a rope onto a cliff a thousand feet up in the air skills? Good, look at this next one. This is crazy. Those tents, you know, that people sleep in on the side of a cliff? Go, no, stop it. Like, hold on. So you're going to climb a mountain that's so high that it takes two days? But Pastor Joe, the views are so breathtaking. Um, it's 2023. Hello, drones. Seriously, though, look at this one. What is wrong? Go to the next one. What is wrong with these people? I think it's the same thing with how most of us, though, walk through life believing that we're okay with God. That their faith will get them where it needs to go without ever really testing it to make sure. I mean, because if you insist on doing something so reckless as mountain climbing, you're going to at least test your equipment, right? You'll make sure your pack has all the equipment you're going to need. You don't want to find out while you're hanging over a cliff that you are one hook short. <laughs> or you forgot a rope. You're going to inspect your ropes before you start your climb. You're going to make sure that your grappling hooks are all in working order, that you have all the, your GPS thingy is going to be charged and ready to go. Oh, I forgot to charge my GPS. I don't know where I am. No, that's not going to happen when you're climbing a cliff. <clears throat> and like I said, your hammering while you're hanging by a rope from a thousand feet skills will be practiced. I don't know how you practice it without killing yourself, but you're going to practice. And you're climbing a mountain, you're going to make sure that everything is in order. Otherwise, it's just too risky, right? And you're playing with fire. 
you're climbing a cliff, you won't take shortcuts with your equipment either. You won't buy the Dollar General mountain climbing ropes. You know what you never hear from a mountain climber when he's going through his equipment? Eh, good enough. No, your equipment must all be perfect. You must have everything you need to make sure you can make the climb. The problem is we do this all the time with our faith. Eh, that's good enough. We may not say it, but we communicate it with our actions, with our commitment to one another, our commitment to prayer and fellowship and community. James is going to teach us that approach to faith, while we understand salvation is by grace through faith and not by works, we understand that. What James is going to teach us is, eh, that's good enough, ain't good enough. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be making sure our faith is tested, perfect, and ready for anything. This is the name of our first sermon in this series, Be Perfect. Go back one slide. I want you to see throughout the sermon series, we're going to have this mountain climbing rope with this grappling hook to remind you about how important it is to test your faith before you rely on it. Let's look at our passage today. We're going to start in James chapter 1. We're going to do the first four verses today. James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you do know, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All right. Let's talk about the history of this passage. This is important to understand the history of the book of James. It's written by a man named James the Just. Boy, that's a great nickname, isn't it? Like, what's your name? Oh, I'm Joe the Just. Said no one ever. So, <clears throat> But James, James is the brother of Jesus, and he is an important leader in the church in Jerusalem. This is very early in the church. More on this critical part about his role in Jerusalem later. Now, most scholars will date the writing of James just about 15 to 20 years after the cross, after Jesus has died and resurrected. It is, in fact, based upon that, what we believe is one of the most important, but one of the very first New Testament writings that was circulated among the early church before any of the Gospels. It before any of Paul's epistles. James. This was the one of the very first things the church looked to to learn what it meant to follow Jesus faithfully. It makes James the earliest formulative, well-circulated document for the early church. So you can see how studying the book of James is critical. It's taking us right back to our early roots. Now in Galatians and Acts, James is named as a prominent leader, predominantly in this Jewish church in Jerusalem. So what happened was James likely became the pastor of the Jerusalem church after Peter left Jerusalem to go and shepherd other churches or start other churches throughout the Roman Empire. So Peter leaves, James the brother of Jesus stays behind, and he is pastoring this 
church in Jerusalem of predominantly almost all Jewish Christians. And there's tremendous um, respect that James had in the early church. The most direct story about his prominence as a leader in the early church and at Jerusalem is at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. We're not going to go into that today, but next week we're going to talk about this story. But in summary, the apostles and all the prominent leaders of the early church had gathered together in Jerusalem to provide leadership on how to connect Gentiles, non-Jewish people who were becoming Christians, how to connect them into the church with all these other people who were Jewish. And the council was kind of contentious, and there was a lot of arguments and debating. Should Gentiles become Jews, so there be adult circumcision, so they follow all the Levitical dietary laws. And so there was a lot of stuff going on, and James is actually the one that led the council to a decision. James, not Peter. James. He said, look, Gentile converts should not be required to become Jewish, but they should be discipled and instructed and encouraged to abandon things like pagan worship and sexual immorality, which were rampant in the societies where they were being saved from. So you can see why in the early church, Jewish Christians would love James, because he was discipling them, and by the way, a time of horrible persecution. As a matter of fact, throughout the New Testament in Paul's letters, you see him raising money for Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who don't even have food, because they're being persecuted not only by Rome, but by the Jewish leaders. So this Jewish church is suffering, and James is there shepherding them, so you know they love him. You can also see why Gentile followers of Jesus had great affection for him as well. For Jewish Christians, he's their shepherd in this intense persecution. As a matter of fact, I want you to understand something. The persecution in Jerusalem at that time of Jewish Christians is some of the most brutal in the history of the Roman Empire. It was so bad, as Paul was raising relief from money from saints, they were what kind of Christians? Gentile Christians, giving money, sending it back to Jerusalem. One of them was our favorite church, Philippi, a church of widows and orphans themselves, war-torn, who were sending money back to feed Jewish Christians and brothers and sisters in Christ who were starving. So anyone that was unable to flee Jerusalem during this persecution, like James, who was unwilling to flee, actually, life became a living hell. But James stayed. 30 years after Jesus, James, the brother of Jesus, James the Just, was stoned to death by Jewish leaders who despised Christians and despised James for leading and pastoring them. Anyone with resources during this tribulation, during this persecution, anyone with any ability to flee Jerusalem left They formed or joined other churches throughout Rome. And this is what we call the diaspora. It means dispersion. So James is now writing to Jewish Christians who escaped this horrible persecution in Jerusalem. He's writing to those Jewish Christians, the 12 tribes of the diaspora. Those of you who have fled Jerusalem and gone to other parts of the Roman Empire, those are the Jewish Christians who escaped them that James is writing to. He was their pastor formerly. And so they thought fondly of him. This group of dispersed Jewish Christians who he's writing to are the backdrop of our study. Now, the Jewish Christians of the diaspora, those who had left Rome, faced their own challenges. 
different than the persecution of their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. They were living among pagans. Some of them were many once pagans themselves, facing the same temptations as Gentile brothers and sisters were facing. And now, the same temptations and distractions that James says the Gentiles should be taught to avoid at the Jerusalem council, now he's eagerly encouraging them to abandon it as well as they dispersed. Understand, if there was one person these Jewish Christians would listen to, it would be James. He writes to these Jews of the diaspora as a beloved elder, imparting kingdom wisdom that they would need. He wanted to arm them with practical, easy-to-remember, short lessons about what their faith should look like in the world. And as they face both temptation and persecution, they needed to be able to easily, quickly remember practical reminders to remain faithful. And that's the way James is written. So that's the history of James. There's a lot there. We won't go into so much history every week, but it's important for you to understand the backdrop for this book. Look at the theology of this. I'm calling this kingdom wisdom. You know, just as Revelation, remember we talked about how Revelation was written as Jewish apocalyptic literature, meaning you have a Jewish Christian audience. Wisdom literature in the Old Testament is designed to deliver short, quick, memorable lessons about wisdom and integrity and righteousness. In fact, James uses Proverbs chapter 1 through chapter 9 as part of his theological foundation for everything he writes in there. And why is that important to know? Listen to me, this is important. The only way that we can interpret James correctly is we have to read it as if we were Jewish Christians reading wisdom literature. It's sort of like a New Testament version of the Jewish Old Testament book of Proverbs. Do you see that? So you have to read it like you would read the book of Proverbs. You don't read it like we did Joshua, which is a narrative story, or the Gospels. You don't read it like Revelation, which is apocalyptic literature with, with vision and wisdom and metaphors. No, you read it as short, quick, easy-to-remember poems and sayings. So both James and Proverbs 1 through 9 provide this wisdom. They both talk about the tongue, self-control, love of money, laziness, favoritism, morality. So James, the book you'll find out as we go through, it's comprised of 12 short pericopes, or what I call pericopes, they're called teaching areas, little short things that you can cordon off and teach by themselves. Lessons as quotable, easy-to-remember concepts. <clears throat> These are all practical guidelines flowing out of a life that has been transformed by the gospel. But there's another equally important source of wisdom in James, and this is beautiful. You ever heard of this thing called the Sermon on the Mount? You're going to be stunned. As a matter of fact, remember how I told you you can't read Revelation without your Old Testament open next to it? You cannot read James without the Sermon on the Mount open right next to it. At that time, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was the most widely circulated, well-known teachings in the first century church. It is also written, I don't know if you realize this, when you think about it now, doesn't the Sermon on the Mount sound a lot like Proverbs? It, too, is Jewish wisdom literature, and that's how it should be read. 
You're going to find out it makes tremendous connections all throughout the book to the Sermon on the Mount in Proverbs chapter 1 through chapter 9. They are descriptions of what living in the kingdom of God will look like as followers of Jesus as opposed to what the kingdom of the world will look like. It is a manifesto for kingdom morals. Have you ever studied the Sermon on the Mount? The things Jesus taught about the kingdom living, doesn't it? Doesn't it, is it just me, or yeah, maybe it's just me, but it seems like a lot of G- stuff Jesus says there is humanly impossible, right? Okay, here, watch these. Love your enemies. Oh, that's easy. I love Gator fans. <clears throat> Sorry. Couldn't resist. So wait a minute, let me ask you a question. First century Jewish Christians were supposed to love and pray for those who were persecuting and killing and starving them in the first century? What? Impossible. Okay, what about this one? Turn the other cheek. When they hit you, let them hit you again. I won't even let people cut me off twice on 41. How about this one? If someone asks you to go with them a mile, go an extra mile. If someone asks you to help them carry something for one mile, help them carry it too. And if someone takes your coat, give them your shirt as well. What about this one? Adultery and murder in your heart. Just your secret lust means you've committed adultery in your heart already. Just by saying you hate your brother or your sister, you've committed murder already. Oh, how about this one? Don't worry about tomorrow. Stop worrying about my future. But that's what we do best. (laughs) How about this one? The narrow gate. Everyone wants to go to heaven, but not many find a narrow path. That's not very unifying a message, is it? We're supposed to grow a church with that? Listen, come to Jesus, but not many people are going to find out what it means to follow him. Oh, how about this one? Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. (laughs) If your hand or your eye cause you to sin, pluck it out or cut it off. Like, seriously? None of you would have any fingers. Can any of you, or eyes, yes. Can any of you live up to what Jesus says life in the kingdom of God should look like? How can we do the impossible? Well, it starts with understanding that the Sermon on the Mount actually does two things that the gospel does. It both condemns and saves. The commands in the Sermon on the Mount and James are condemnation for anyone who thinks they can try to become righteous without Jesus, whether it's through atheism or religion, whatever it is, you think you can do good and be a good person, the Sermon on the Mount says, nah, you're not even close. Sort of like the story of the rich young ruler, for those of you that know that story. The Sermon on the Mount also reveals the standard that you must live up to if you think you can come to the Father without the cross. The Sermon on the Mount will condemn anyone with no or little desire to at least try to live by these essential core values of the kingdom of God. But, that's the good news coming, the Sermon on the Mount and James also provide evidence that reveals 
when God has given one of us his chosen gift of faith. They reveal supernatural desires. These are not natural desires to do these things in the Sermon on the Mount. He's given us supernatural desires as children of God that the unredeemed world will never be able to embrace or understand. Turn the other cheek. Nah. It reveals the great gulf, the distance, the contrast between the wisdom of the kingdom of God and the wisdom of this world. It lists the symptoms of redemption. I, 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 I try to come up with a word, and I can't think of anything better, especially coming out of a pandemic, right? Oh, you're dry cough, you know, whatever. What James gives you is the symptoms of redemption. Evidence that faith has filled you with desire to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. It's instruction, it's, it's instruction on how to know your faith is the real thing. How to test it before your life actually depends on it. Because on the day of the Lord, you want to make sure that your faith that you're counting on will be complete, perfect, and fully formed. So all of chapter 1, you're going to find this out, all of chapter 1 is actually a cover page for the rest of chapter 2 through 5. It is a summary page of all the lessons that you're about to learn in detail in chapters 2 through 5. Chapter 1 is a summary, an introduction, saying, by the way, here's what I'm going to give you. These are quick, easy ways to remember the things I'm going to teach you in detail later. So it's sort of like an outline. Boom, boom, table of contents. It is written so that each time that you read it, chapter 1, it provides clues to jog a memory of the lessons you're about to learn in chapters 2 through 5. Does that make sense? So that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks is take chapter 1, break down the outline, the table of contents, and then we're going to draw really cool little connections to chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. So that's the theology. Okay, I know I've got a lot there for you. Personal section. Your faith must be perfect. This was the sermon preview this week. Only perfect faith can save you. Be glad it gets tested so often. A mountain climber is very happy to test his equipment before a dangerous climb, and he will do so rigorously and vigilantly. We need to have the same zeal, desire, and willingness to test our faith too, to make sure that it is ready one of the things as a pastor that I hear so much from people, how do I really know? Well, James will tell you. Don't wait till it's too late to discover that your faith cannot endure trials or will it not be able to perform when Jesus returns. Like the mountain climber will inspect and test his ropes and his hooks and his gear, you need to test and inspect your faith. You don't want to climb a mountain with rope or equipment with flaws. All your equipment must be perfect. This concept applies to our faith. It must be perfect too. That's why Jesus said in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 40. Look, Jesus said this. This is not James, although it sounds like it, doesn't it? Go back, go back. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What did James say? Count it joy when you go through trials. Look what he says right up here. Go to the next one. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect. You may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You know how we read the Bible, right? When you do this, you would say, ah, there must be a connection between the two, right? But be honest. At first, this is troubling because it seems impossible. Also, it seems contradictory to the gospel message, right? Salvation by grace through faith. Obviously, it's not about human perfection. We can all agree on that, right? But it is a command from Jesus, so we must understand what it means when Jesus says, be perfect, just like my Father is perfect, like your Father is perfect. See, that is the theme of the wisdom literature of the book of James. In fact, he makes this bold command in chapter, uh, verse 3 and 4. He puts this at the beginning so that his, right here, right in verse 3 or 4, at the very beginning of chapter 1, he puts this connection about being perfect. Why? So his Jewish Christian readers would see right away, oh, he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. Let's get our Sermon on the Mount scroll and open it up, and let's look at, that's what James is doing. He's doing a callback. In fact, the word perfect, look at this word. The word perfect Jesus uses is the exact same word for perfect that James uses to describe the kind of faith we have. Go to the next one. Teleos, brought to fullness, fullness, a finished work that lacks nothing needed for completeness. It's the same word. They would have immediately made the connection. Ah, James is talking about the Sermon on the Mount. He is about to provide the secrets to the perfection that Jesus has commanded us to pursue. This is exactly how we need to read it, church, with the Sermon on the Mount open right next to it, like we did with the Old Testament and the book of Revelation. The book of James, you're going to find this as we go through. It is an intricate brilliantly compiled gift to us to help us know if our connection to Jesus is in fact real. James teaches us how the Sermon on the Mount provides comfort for the redeemed, not judgment. James teaches perfecting, testing our faith is going to be a lifelong process providing more and more assurance along the way each time it's tested by our failures or by someone else's failures or by hardship. Until the day we see our Jesus face to face and are made perfect, just like Jesus, even as our Father in heaven is perfect. James provides the wisdom that we, that you, need to know for certain that God is at work saving and transforming you as we speak. James teaches us how the commands in the Sermon on the Mount and Proverbs chapter 1 through chapter 9, they aren't prerequisites for saving faith, but they are evidence of a heart with wisdom, a heart that is ride or die for the kingdom, like those three and a half tries we learned about in Joshua. You see, the Sermon on the Mount and James are going to say whether or not you are actually ride or die. And if you aren't ride or die, there's just die. James reveals the symptoms of a real, perfect, saving faith passing every test until the day you, we, will need it the most. This is exactly what Paul was teaching to his favorite church when he wrote to them and said this, Philippians 1.6, 
I'm sure of this. You began a good work and you will do what? Will bring it to perfection, completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But it would kind of be cool to know ahead of time that he's actually doing it, right? That's what James will do. Paul was saying this to them. He tells the Philippians, listen, I see symptoms of real faith in your life. Evidence of a perfect, tested, complete faith. I've seen your desire to pursue all the things that Jesus commanded us in the Sermon on the Mount. Your faith, Philippians, has been tested. So I have complete confidence that all your equipment for a faith that climbs or moves mountains is in perfect order. But it won't be all at once. There are going to be many other trials, tests, and cliffs and valleys where your faith will prove its completeness in little ways and in big ones. Heartbreak. Betrayal. Loss. Grief. Personal failure. Along the way, your life will be filled with the evidence that your faith is real. Be glad when these difficulties come. They will let you know that your faith is perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Look at this. Paul wasn't saying, meh, Philippians, that's good enough. Here's what he also says in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, because I have confidence that your faith is perfectly complete and it's going to be great on the day of the Lord, I, I have confidence, but because I have confidence, therefore, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you see a command, I have confidence, but because I have confidence, continue to display the things that have given me that confidence, but don't worry, it might be hard, but it is God working in you to fulfill it. James and Paul are both teaching us there is no such thing as an apathetic, coasting, meh, that's good enough follower of Jesus. Are you hearing me? I just need enough church, enough community, enough gospel, enough devotional daily bread, just enough Jesus to get to heaven. I don't want to be some kind of Jesus freak. Yes, you do. <laughs> you need church. You need to know the ropes of your faith are going to hold on the day of the Lord. You need to know that these ropes will not let you down. Church family, what I want for you, for us, is that the symptoms, the evidence of real faith are abundant at grace life. Now, for some... The wisdom in James will wreck you, wake you up, and drive you to action. For others, this book will encourage you and inspire you to keep going, providing warning signs of faulty equipment. But our prayer as a shepherd team and as church leadership and as your pastor, our prayer is this. As we go through this study, each one of you will know one of two things that your faith is tested and perfect, lacking nothing, or that your faith is dead and you need a new real one. 
follower of Jesus, do you desire to know if your faith is complete? Do you desire to know for sure that your faith is lacking nothing? Do you want it to be perfect? That's what we're going to be doing. Dear Jesus, we come to you in this study on James, and Lord, we, we are a little apprehensive because the cliffs are steep, the commands are hard, the truths are difficult, but Lord, we throw ourselves at your grace and mercy. Lord, if we need to be wrecked, then wreck us. If we can be encouraged, encourage us. Lord, I pray that as we go through this book of James, there are those in our church who will be encouraged to continue forward, that you have begun a good work in them and you're going to be faithful to complete it. And there are those, perhaps, that think they're followers of Jesus, but you will reveal to them through your truth that they need a better faith. Because, Lord, the last thing we want is to have a faith that we think is going to be ready for the day of the Lord and it break. The rope frays and snaps. The grappling hooks come out of the cliff. We don't want to fall. So, Lord, as we go through over the next few months, we make a commitment to you as a church family to do open heart surgery on our hearts and minds. We just want to know. We just want to know for sure that our faith that you've given us, the gift of faith that you've chosen to give us, that you called us out of darkness into light, we want to know over and over again that we can trust it, that it is real, that it is reliable, so that we know on the day of the Lord it will not let us down. And we ask for these things in 